what is the purpose? What is the purpose? That's what Rick Dunbar yesterday, who's a veterinarian and a medical doctor, who leads medical mission trips, has been himself a missionary in other parts of the world. Yesterday, as he did a training seminar, he started off trying to help prepare folks to understand that it was important that at the outset of a missionary trip, that when they go to some other place, that they must, they must, they must define the purpose. What's the purpose? You see, he understood that if the purpose for one person, maybe a team leader from a church, is to see as many patients as possible, that that may actually come in contradiction with the purpose of the missionary who's in the country. They may actually want to slow the pace of the number and increase the time for the ability to be able to share the gospel. And you can see how the two could come at odds very quickly, that if a missionary is saying, no, we need to slow the pace, but the missionaries who have come on a short-term mission trip are saying, we need to see more, 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 how those two things could come at odds and create a tension. Well, Luke wrote with a purpose. He was clear about that purpose. And the only conflict, the only tension that is created when we come to God's Word is when we read it wrongly. When we come to it and we're looking for something in it that isn't the point of it. And so today, Luke is very clear as we begin a sermon series walking through the entire Gospel of Luke, looking at some specific passages over the next eight weeks leading up to Resurrection Sunday. We look at the very beginning that Luke, a skilled historian, an eloquent writer, states very clearly at the very beginning of his gospel the exact purpose of his writing. And so I invite you to stand today for the reading of God's word as we look today at the very first four verses of the gospel of Luke. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Can you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that according to the will of your Holy Spirit, that these things were written so that we today, as those who love you, God, might have certainty, might have confidence in the things that we have been instructed so that we might truly walk with Christ with confidence. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I've entitled the, this series, Walking with Christ. And that's what we in Christ are now enabled to do, is to walk with Christ in this life. Literally going to the places that Christ goes being able to hear the words of Christ spoken in his word, of having the heart of Christ within us, the mind with Christ within us, 
the love of Christ within us so that in every part of our life, every part of our being, we proclaim Christ. We truly become his ambassadors. And Luke was one such ambassador. Luke was one such follower of Jesus Christ who revealed with his entire being that Jesus Christ is Lord. But is Luke just a historian? Is Luke just one who made a careful investigation and wrote down some things? The answer is no. And before we even go into the words here, if you look at the top of your, your Bible, it says Luke. And, th- and that's not because this is about Luke, but because it's written by Luke and, and credited to him as being the author. You see, Luke wrote two volumes, Luke and Acts, which are intended to be read together. Luke being the author of each. And if you read them that way, Luke, and then right into the book of Acts, you see how clearly these things go together, how one picks up where the other left off. But that's not the only way that we know Luke is from this gospel of Luke. Instead, we get to know Luke a little bit and to understand that you can be confident that you should listen to Luke because of his experience, because of who he was. You see, we meet Luke in his own writings with the first personal plural pronoun, we. In Acts chapter 16, verse 11, there we read, from Troas, we put out to sea. And this is speaking about Paul and others that were on Paul's missionary journeys. That now Luke is caught up in the adventure of making disciples of all nations. First, we see Luke as perhaps the first medical missionary. That's really important given the, the weekend. Thank you for being a church that hosts things like medical mission conferences. They have a heart for doing medical missions. Colossians 4 verse 14, Paul writes, Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas send you greetings. So writing to the church at Colossae, Luke is is sending his love, but he's, notice how Paul writes, the dearly loved physician. I don't know about you, but there are some men in my life, many of whom are retired now as physicians, that I could use that exact modifier. These are godly men who walk with the Lord. They are dearly loved physicians. But not only is he a doctor, a physician in his day, but he's a medical missionary. He's a missionary for we see him in the plural pronoun we in Acts actively engaged in the missionary work with Paul. We read these words in Acts chapter 20, verses 4 through 7. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread. In five days, we reached them at Troas, where we spent seven days. On the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. Paul spoke to them, and since he was about to depart the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. Get the picture, Luke's in the room. Luke is listening to Paul speak over and over and over again. Luke is with these brand new believers, many of whom are Gentiles, like himself, and is listening to the things spoken about this Jewish faith, something that he's been exploring, something that he's been following, he says from the very beginning, he is on the scene. 
He has street credibility. He is one who has been there and done that. Chapter 20, he goes on, after we tore ourselves away from them, we set sail for Kos the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. Finding a ship crossing over to, the, to Phoenicia, we boarded and set sail. And after we sighted Cyprus, passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria and arrived at Tyre, since the ship was to unload its cargo there. We sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days. And through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our time had come to an end, we left to continue our journey with all of them, with their wives and children, accompanying us out of the city. And after kneeling down on the beach to pray... We said farewell to one another and boarded the ship, and they returned home. I mean, just get the affection of this man for people just like you, for people just like your children, a man who was certainly concerned about the cough of a small boy that he could hear, but he was also concerned about the souls of fathers and mothers. A man who walked with them and took them by the hands and then got down on his knees on the beach to pray over them and to pray with them. You see, all of the affection and respect that we feel for Paul as a missionary, we should be able to share with Luke. A man who's not often seen that way. A man that we often don't see on the pages because he's not writing about himself. He's communicating about the spread of the gospel, but we see him there hidden behind this small two-letter word, we. In fact, we read that little word we in Acts 27, a passage I won't read in its entirety, but it's this epic shipwreck. I mean, it's this unbelievable fight for life of an entire ship of men, over 200 people on a boat that are in a hurricane for, for practical purposes for weeks. I mean, clinging to life, Luke is there for the sake of the gospel. Luke is there when every one of them survive. Luke is there when Paul gets bitten by a snake, shakes it off into the fire and lives. And then an entire island, this indigenous people group, all of them come to faith in Jesus, witnessing what it is that God has done, that God is with this person. I mean, just get the picture of, of Luke as a medical missionary. But that wasn't the only facet to who this man was. He was also a historian. You see, no other ancient historian is as scrutinized as Luke, Josephus, not even remotely as criticized and scrutinized as Luke, who was a historian. And there is no other historian as verified as Luke. As it were, every time a spade of dirt gets flipped over, so it seems in the Middle East, in Israel and other places, there's more validation for the specific things that Luke has written. He was an excellent historian but then third, we need to see Luke as a faithful servant of the word. Paul ends his life as a prisoner in Rome, writing letters to Timothy to encourage and equip and spur him on in his faith. From what we know, Paul is being held in a former cistern, a hole in the ground that no longer holds water. Grasp, if you can, the sense of loneliness of Paul, who has spent his life making disciples of all nations. His, he's given up this, this 
Judaism or this Jewish faith in the sense of being one devoted as a Pharisee and it said, I give myself fully to Jesus Christ who is the Messiah of our Jewish faith. He sees the continuity. He sees how all the pages of scripture have been pointing to Jesus and then he goes out into the world to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. A message not just for Jews who have been dispersed, but a message for the Gentile, for all people, for all nations, for all tribes, for all tongues. This is that Paul who has so many connections, so many relationships, and now is a man alone in a hole in the ground where he will spend likely the rest of his days dying in solitude Dying alone, separated from all of the churches that he has helped to plant, all of the pastors he has raised up, all of the other fellow missionaries that he has been with. And he doesn't have Facebook to scroll through to see all the churches and the work of ministry that are going on. He doesn't have a bunch of books to read to keep himself busy. He doesn't even have people to visit him, all except one. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 through 11, we read this. Make every effort to come to me soon, Paul writing to Timothy, because Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you, for he is useful to me in the ministry. You see, this is a humble servant of the word. Who is bringing Paul things to write, these letters that have now become Scripture? Luke. We don't know for sure because it's not spoken clearly, but we can imagine that he's using his medical skills in order to make enough to provide for himself and for Paul and to be able to supply things to Paul to keep writing. The the paper on which to write, the ink with which to use, these sort of things Luke is there, a faithful servant of the word, an excellent servant of the word, a humble servant of the word whom we can trust and whom we should expect God to to use to communicate his heart to his people. You see, all of that is just in that, that opening word, that kind of title to this gospel, Luke. I hope you know him better. I hope you see how the pages of Scripture inform why we can listen to a man like this. This beloved physician, this amazing historian, this humble servant of the Word is worth your listening to every word written. Because this was a man not only speaking of himself, but this was one who was speaking the very words of God. You see, we can have not only confidence that, man, that Luke is a man we should listen to, we can second have confidence as we walk with Christ that these things actually happened. You see, written by Luke in a style that mirrors other scholarly historical, historical accounts, we can know this is real history. This isn't made up. This was not a National Enquirer publication, something you can pick up at the grocery store in the line just to help you pass the time. This was not a a Facebook post, just somebody kind of going off on something they feel really strongly, even if they believe it, but it's not true. 
No, this was a Cambridge University or an Oxford Press publication. This has weight behind it. This is scholarly. This is researched. This is true. He notes, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. Now, commenting on this verse, Origen, writing in the third century, writes this, with respect to the New Testament also, many have tried to write gospels, but not all found acceptance. You should know that not just four gospels, but very many were composed. The gospels we have were chosen from among these gospels and passed on to the churches. We know this from Luke's own prologue, which begins this way, because many have tried to compose an account. These words have tried imply an accusation against those who rushed into writing gospels without the grace of the Holy Spirit. Matthew, Mark, John, and Luke did not try to write. They wrote their gospels when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Hence, many have tried to compose an account of the events that are clearly known among us. Our doctrines about, about the person of our Lord and Savior should be drawn from these approved gospels. I know one gospel called according to Thomas and another according to Matthias. We have read many others too, so that we do not appear to be ignorant of anything because of those people who think we know something if they have examined these gospels. But in all of these questions, we approve of nothing but that which the church approves, namely only four canonical gospels. That was written in the third century. So like 200, between 200 and 250 AD, that the church has already come to this place of recognizing these four gospels have been provided by God himself. His Holy Spirit filling these four men in order to communicate the truth of the things concerning Jesus the truth that he taught, the truth of his miracles. Now, how do we know we should reject the gospel of Thomas and the gospel of Judas and the gospel of Matthias? Because there's all of these gospel accounts that many today who are skeptics of what we call the canonized, the accepted, the standard text of what happened. How do we know that we should reject those? Because the Lord clearly spoke through his church in the early days of Christianity, making these things abundantly clear. It wasn't Origen who decided. It wasn't a secret society of priests and pastors who decided. It wasn't a pope or a council that decided. It was the church as led by God, the same God who led light, Luke to write every word recorded in this gospel. Now, a key word to note in this very opening verse is the word fulfilled. Luke did not simply say, these things happened among us, but these things were fulfilled among us. It is beautiful to see the end from the beginning. And what is so powerful at the end of the gospel of Luke after Jesus has died and been resurrected, we see him walking on the road to Emmaus with two disciples. They don't recognize him. Their eyes have not been opened to know that they're literally walking with the resurrected Jesus. And in fact, Jesus is even kind of saying, you know, what's going on, guys? Well, have you not heard? 
about what happened in Jerusalem? Jesus kind of goes on, well, tell me about it. And so they begin to, to complain almost, to lament. Their eyes still closed that these things must be fulfilled. And Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. I mean, get the point here that's being made is that these things were fulfilled fulfilled, spoken of in the law, in the prophets, in the Psalms. These things were fulfilled in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ the Lord. That's the point. That's why Luke says fulfilled, and that's why Luke ends the way it does in Luke 24. Nothing recorded in the Gospels was chance. It was all fulfillment of what God had promised to do. And that ought to change the way that we read the gospel of Luke. This is fulfillment. God promised. And so even at those turns of the story where it seems unexpected, expect especially the unexpected death of Jesus. You see, that should be unexpected. We, we expect it now. We, we have the symbol of death here in this room. So we expect his death but we shouldn't have expected his death. We should have expected his eternal reign without punishment because he alone was the righteous one. But his death had been foretold. His death had been promised. He would die for you and me. Luke continues, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us, it also seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the from the very first, to write to you an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus. Now, the original eyewitnesses, let's talk about that for a moment. Speaking of the resurrected Jesus, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, For I passed on to you, as most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Again, fulfillment. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Again, fulfillment. And that he appeared, listen to this part, these next couple of verses, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. This means that there were hundreds of, of eyewitnesses to the resurrection. There were thousands of eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus. There were hundreds of, hundreds of eyewitnesses to the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ. And all of this points to this access that Luke had in his life to talk to people who saw with their eyes. Not just one person, not just one person given to visions and things like that, but people, account after account after account after account of what they saw, what they heard, what they smelled, what they touched, 
what they ate with Jesus, all of these things communicated and captured in the Gospel of Luke. There's also intentional education that Luke received. You see, he says, servants of the word handed them down to us. Luke is admitting that even though he is a learned physician, he was also a student and a lifelong learner. He was sitting under the feet of the apostles. He, he has listened to the preaching and teaching of Peter, James, John, Paul, the other apostles and disciples who taught exactly what they had received from Jesus. Careful investigation, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first. Like a careful investigator, Luke is not pulling out some cold file and trying to sort through the mystery of what, what, what did really happen. No, within a short period of time from the actual events themselves, he has begun. In fact, he says from the very beginning. So in other words, he's been making notes and keeping up with things like a careful historian from the very beginning Almost like he's saying, I took the original report. An orderly account to write to you in orderly sequence. Luke is attentive to detail, providing details and timing that Matthew and Mark often omit. And then he writes to Theophilus. Now, Ambrose, who's writing in the fourth century, again, trying to, to, to hear the voices of those not as far removed he writes this, so the gospel was written to Theophilus, that is to him who loves God. That's what his name means, a lover of God or beloved of God. And then he goes on, he says, if you love God, then it was written to you. If it was written to you, then discharge the duty of an evangelist. In other words, receive it and give it. Modern-day commentators are in general agreement that Theophilus was an actual person, likely of high standing and perhaps someone who helped resource the work undertaken by Luke. It would have taken a tremendous amount of, of resources to be able to, to, to even write this extensive account of Jesus Christ. Yet we understand that this work of Luke was certainly intended to benefit the faith of all who love God. For bound up in the heart of Luke is a purpose not only to be realized in the life of Theophilus, but in the hearts of all who love God. So that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. All of this leading to this. And what this gives to us is confidence as we walk with Jesus that comes from reading for oneself and not only believing what you heard. Confidence that comes for, from reading for oneself and not just believing what you heard. In John chapter 4, Jesus gives grace to a Samaritan woman who then went into her town and said, Jesus told me everything I ever did. Now, interested in Jesus because of her testimony, they all went out to him. And many more believed because of what he said. But then they told the Samaritan woman, we no longer believe because of what you said since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. The Scriptures are how you and I hear for ourselves that Jesus really is the Savior of the world. But Chad, isn't Scripture essentially reading the Samaritan woman's testimony rather than hearing it? 
I mean, isn't the gospel of Luke simply what Luke says about Jesus? Well, listen to Peter, writing in 2 Peter chapter 3, also regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. So this is Peter talking about Paul and Paul's writings, the letters that we now have in our New Testament. He speaks about all these things in all his letters. There are some things that are hard to understand in them. I'm really glad that Peter says that because am I the only one that struggles in certain passages, You know, especially in Romans, where it's like, I think I understand the untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction. And then listen to this, as they also do the rest of the scriptures. Now, what Peter is doing here and what God is allowing to be communicated to the church is an equation, an equation that elevates the writings of Paul, his letters, to scriptural authority. And this is not an accident this is something so that we can have confidence in what is written. And while Peter says nothing of Luke in this passage, we understand by careful criteria that what Luke wrote carries the same weight as what Paul wrote, meaning that he wrote also, what he wrote is also to be received as scripture. There's this union of what is communicated. There is this effect, going back to our understanding of Luke, that he's been in the presence with these people. He didn't just hear it one time. He didn't just go to a conference and hear Paul. He has been a companion of Paul for years. He's with him to the very last breath. And so then as Luke sits down to communicate all of these things, we then turn back to Paul, understanding this, 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is inspired by God. Literally, it's God's Word. And it's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Theophilus. Theophilus is intended with this work. And you who love God are intended with this work to derive a certainty of the things of which you have been instructed so that you may be complete, equipped for every good work. As we open up the gospel of Luke, we open ourselves to hear, not from Luke, but from God. Not from Chad, not the thoughts of Luke, but from God himself. God inspired every word written in this account. And everything written in the gospel of Luke is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Please hear my heart. This is why I plead with you to read the Bible. Please read the Bible. We have created as a church Bible reading plans. But regardless of whether you do one of our church-wide Bible reading plans or not, please Read the Bible. I want you to, to learn the voice of God. God speaking through his word. I want you to so intimately know his voice that you can hear when he calls amidst all the noise, all the clamor, and all the competing voices. To know his voice and draw near to him. If you don't train yourself 
to hear and know his voice from his word, and you will always live in great danger of going astray and being consumed by the one who prowls around looking for someone to devour. But go with me to the last word of verse 4, instructed. Literally means to share a communication that one receives, a report, to be informed. Now, can we have confidence that what was written nearly 2,000 years ago is still what we have today? I mean, can we trust that this hasn't been corrupted in incredible ways? What about the telephone game? We know that the message changes drastically when we play the telephone game. And that's exactly right. And while men like Bart Ehrman who has written books to to try to undermine any confidence that you might have that what you're reading is actually what was originally written, would have you to latch on to the telephone game analogy in order to erode your confidence in the Bible. Let me ask you a question. How do you play the telephone game? The way I've always played it is with speech alone. You simply whispered the message into the ear of the person next to you. But that's not the way that this works. The message of Luke was not whispered, it was written. Written down, and then written down again, and then written down again, and written down again, and written down again, and written down again, and And I bet you never played the telephone game that way. You see, the analogy is not fitting for the Bible. And the way the scriptures were transmitted, they were copied, literally put the copy here, put a blank paper here and copy what was written, not whisper it into the ear of the next person so that you can laugh at the end of the round. Instead, a better modern analogy is email forwarding. When you and I forward emails we have a moment in which we can edit the original message before hitting send. And then, but then there's the chance that the person to whom we send it might respond not only to me, but to the original author, thereby increasing accountability that the message is unaltered. More than that, what if the original email was intended to be forwarded? In other words, it was like, forward this. That increases the probability that the message will be left intact, forwarded just as it was given. And thus, while variations could certainly exist, the vast majority of what could be read in the inboxes of many people would likely be very similar to what was originally emailed. And that is a better modern analogy than the telephone game to understand the reliability of the Bible. You see, we have thousands and thousands of emails, as it were. We have thousands and thousands of manuscripts, not to mention all of the additional writings that are not Scripture, that quote Scripture from different generations of believers that verify that what was, what was being quoted was what was written, which was going back to the original. There is incredible evidence, scientific evidence, people that aren't even believers saying, yeah, what you're reading right here is 99% accurate. And you say, well, Chad, what about that 1%? There is no doctrine. There's no major truth. There's not a, a variation of Luke that says, well, Jesus is still in the grave. 
There's no variation of Luke that he wasn't born of a virgin. There's no variation of Luke that he didn't, didn't communicate the gospel, the kingdom of God, that he didn't perform miracles and heal people and raise the dead. There's no variation of Luke in which he doesn't die on the cross for your sins. There's no variation of Luke that does not contain what we call the good news of the gospel. Not one single variation of all of the thousands of thousands of thousands of copies. Instead, it's just, oh, well, there's a letter that's different here that doesn't change anything. Or there's a word that got left out. Oh, that sentence got copied twice, or that sentence got overlooked because this sentence started here. And all of these things that are very explainable, but no core doctrine in question. That's good news because you and I need to know. We need to know. And this means to know exactly in verse four, completely through and through. You see, God wants you to know exactly what he has done so he has preserved his word. God wants you and I to know completely of the righteousness of his son so it is recorded with great detail. You see, the beauty of what you and I are going to read as we read through the gospel of Luke deals with every current issue that we face today. Every concern of injustice is dealt with in the pages of Luke. Every concern of, of treating people wrongly is dealt with in the pages of Luke. The humility that we want to see in leaders is dealt with in the gospel of Luke. And the truth, the truth that we so long to build our lives on, not falsehoods, not opinions, not political opinions, not strife, but to build our lives on a solid rock is found in the gospel of Luke. You and I are hungry for Luke. We may not have known that though. We are desperate for the Jesus of the gospel of Luke, though we may not have known it. So I promise you that as we turn into God's word, we will hear from him, we will see Jesus because God wants you and I to know that through Jesus, the perfect and righteous, that there is forgiveness of sin. God wants you and I to know exactly what it cost to save us from sin. God wants you and I to know through and through that Jesus has been raised from the grave to never experience death again. Don't miss it. It's not simply Luke who wants Theophilus to know with certainty. It's God who wants all who love him to know with certainty. You see, that's why Luke records as he does in Luke chapter 22, the first Lord's Supper. It's because he wants Theophilus to have a certainty, a knowledge to know why we do this. Why do we do this? Is this something we made up? Did we just try to come up with illustrations for the life and death of Jesus Christ? No. He records with great specificity what Jesus said and what Jesus expected of his followers so that it adds meaning. It gives us understanding why we do this today. You see, when the hour came in Luke 22, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, 
I want you to take this bread, peel back that little piece of paper from, from the bread. He gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And before you take it, if you're here today, if you're here today and you have never trusted Jesus alone for salvation, I want you to know this illustrates what he did for you. His body was given for you. So rather than taking this in this way, I just want you to just stop and to consider the message of the gospel. What, what Jesus said in this moment, that he wanted his followers to do this in remembrance of him. So if you confess faith in Jesus Christ, I want you to take this bread in remembrance of Jesus and his sacrifice for you. Verse 20 says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And we understand that he desired for it to be taken in the same way in remembrance of him. So again, if you are here today considering Jesus, then I encourage you, consider that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And if your faith is in Jesus, then I encourage you, take with hearts of gratitude in remembrance of his sacrifice for you. God, we thank you for your word and how it grants to us confidence to walk with Jesus. Confidence that these things happen and that they are what is true and real. Lord, there are so many ways we can build our lives. There's so many ways that we, we are disciples that we don't even realize. Disciples of, of a certain ideology, uh, of a certain lifestyle, of a certain structure, class. But we are called to be disciples of Jesus. And so this represents the core of our life. This becomes the illustration of what our life is to be and to look like. So Lord, please, as we consider, as we look to the gospel of Luke, will you please show us Christ? Will you please increase our union with Christ so that in everything that we say and do, we know and proclaim Christ? I'm going to invite for all of us to stand in this moment and worship the Lord on the ground of his word and for what he has done for you and I.